You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Father, you are holy and worthy of our praise. Loud shouts of song, clapping our hands, raising our hands. Lord, you are worthy of praise and adoration and Lord, because you are holy, because you are Lord of all. Thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been cleansed of our sin and we are qualified to come to your presence to enjoy your nearness and your fullness. Worthy are you, Lord God. Father, would the cries that we sing not just remain on Sunday, but it would, would it reverberate into every day of our lives? Worthy are you, holy are you. Help us to live lives of worship in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, I'd invite you to open your Bible with me to Philemon. The book of Philemon, there's only one chapter in it. Today we're going to consider verses 4 to verse 7. I've been learning much about fellowship and spiritual relationships as I've been studying this and preaching this series, uh, Community on Purpose, what it means to learn to practice real fellowship together. You know, in our lives, um, I think it's fair to say that you can look at your own priorities by the way that you spend your time. And we do a lot of things with our time. A big portion of our time is spent sleeping or working and eating. And with what we have in between, we prioritize some of us exercise and fitness, entertainment, friends and socializing, extracurricular activities, academic tutoring, athletics, or where you put your time shows what you prioritize. So I was curious this past week, we're doing a series on fellowship, how much is our church actually engaged in fellowship? So I looked at the stats. Stats aren't necessarily themselves positive or negatives, they're just a reflection of reality or circumstances, but through the stats we can interpret the story of what's actually happening. Is it positive? Is it negative? And over the past four weeks on weekend services, our church has averaged 890 youth and adults attending and 146 children attending our services over the past four weeks. Currently, as of this past Friday, there are 677 small group participants in our church. That's not unique individuals. If you attend uh, two small groups, you're counted twice for that. So maybe the number's lower and maybe more like 600 or 625. Still, if it was, let's say 620 small group, unique small group participants, that means that there's like close to 70 some odd percent of our church that attends once a month or comes to our church on a monthly basis in a small group. Okay, it seems like for some of us, participating in small group, because we put the time to it, it actually matters. But what if we had 100% attendance? 
every single person who entered through the door is in a small group. And then not only we had 100% participation, but what if we had 100% attendance weekly? Every single time small group happened, every single member was there. Would that be enough? Would that mean that we're doing fellowship in a way that actually matters? I'm more concerned, or better way to say it, I'm less concerned about us doing a thing and more concerned about us doing a thing in a way that actually is profitable for us. The question we want to ask and answer today is how can small groups actually be effective for our growth? I hope you're encouraged to participate in a small group through the series that we've been exploring. But more than just participating in the group, I hope that we participate in our groups in a way that's actually effective so that we can grow to maturity in Christ Jesus. Not that we just do it, but we do it in a way that actually is meaningful and impactful. And I think Philemon verse four to seven has the answer. Philemon verse four to seven emphasizes three priorities. Three priorities that make for effective fellowship. And if you prioritize these in the way that you interact in your small group, and this applies into your marriage and your family as well, I believe that this will translate into growth and maturity in our walk with Christ. So as we do, would you stand with me to honor God as we read the scriptures? Philemon, verse four to seven. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. You can take your seats. So what are these priorities? How can you participate in small group in a way that actually is effective for growth and maturity? Here's the first one. Effective fellowship happens when we are diligently praying for growth. Effective fellowship happens when we diligently pray for growth. Even though he never met the church, Philemon, excuse me, Paul had a immense influence on the church that met in Philemon's house. How did he have influence on them if he never met them? Well, because he prayed for them. We see that Paul prayed in two ways. First, he prayed with thankful worship for Philemon as the leader of the church. Then he prayed with urgent pleading. That's what intercession means. He prayed with, prayed with urgent pleading that God would intervene and make a difference and promote change and growth in the life of the church. Verse four describes the thankful prayer that he prayed. When he thought about the quality of Philemon's character as the pastor of that church, he gave thanks to God. Look at verse four. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Notice that Paul didn't give thanks to Philemon 
for the work that Philemon did. Paul gave thanks to God when he remembered what Philemon did. This is a good lesson for us who serve in church and are in some form of spiritual leadership. Watch out for an attitude of entitlement that gets, that gets upset if you don't get acknowledged for the work that you do in the church. Philemon contributed valuably to the church. Paul was saying that he didn't thank Philemon for his work. He thanked God for the work Philemon did. See, all the work that anyone could contribute to the church isn't effective because you did it. Any good we can contribute isn't contributed because it, the good is sourced and originating from us. You can serve the church effectively for the good of the church because of what the gifts the Holy Spirit has given you for the sake of the church. Anything that you do behind the scenes, anything that you do in your small group, all of our gifts that we have to contribute to the good of the church are entrusted to us from the Holy Spirit. You can be a tool used by God, but the thanks isn't to you. The thanks is to God. So if there's someone in your life who's been influential on you, maybe a small group leader, maybe your parents, maybe a grandmother or an aunt or an uncle or just another small group member who doesn't have a leadership position, they're just a brother or sister in Christ. When someone positively, positively influences you for your walk with Christ so that you can grow, you should give thanks to God for that. Paul did. We should too. The second way that he prayed was also with um, urgent pleading. He was pleading with God that God would promote and affect change in the life of the church. He prayed this way in verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That's what we want. We want effective fellowship, effective small groups for growth. He desired, Paul, growth in that church, and he prayed that God would intervene. Certainly, Philemon had a job to do. We are all called to the work of making disciples. You have a job in helping others grow. But our effort is not the power that affects the outcome that we desire. Our effort is not the power that affects the outcome we desire. God alone produces change. That means if you want to see change and growth, if I want to see change and growth, we must depend on God in prayer. Would anyone here today say that they're the type of person that has a green thumb? Anyone? I got a green thumb. Not metaphoric, not literally, right? Metaphorically. If you have a green thumb, my suggestion is go to the doctor. Metaphorically, we know what you mean when we say we have a green thumb, right? So you're good in the garden. Right? Your flowers are the flowers that stay alive. Your tomatoes are the tomatoes that stay ripe the longest, and you can actually grow tomatoes in your backyard. People who have green thumbs and are into gardening get this idea, I think, that you have a job to do, but you don't have the power to actually affect the outcome. Let's just think of something basic. 
That, even if you don't have a green thumb, you probably want to try and do at least, and that's keep your garden or your grass green, right? If you want to keep your grass green, you got to fertilize it. If you want to keep your grass green, you got to water it. It's your job to do, and if you don't do it, the grass is going to go brown and not grow. But are you the one that changes the chemical structure of the grass so that it gets greener and thicker? Are you the one that changes the molecular structure of the grass so that together with water and sunlight and oxygen, it actually grows? No, you're not. You sow the seed, you put the fertilizer down, you put the water on it, but the natural structure of photosynthesis working together with the fertilizer itself produces the growth. 1 Corinthians 3 kind of communicates the same idea when it describes how we actually truly impact, or rather don't really impact, true growth. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, What then is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is nothing but only God who gives the growth. Hey, what growth do you want to see in your life this year? What growth do you want to see in your small group this year? In your marriage? In your kids? You might think that prayerlessness is saying nothing. But prayerlessness is shouting at God, I don't need you. Do you want to see your kids love Jesus more than the world? Do you want to see your spouse have the same commitment to disciplines and spiritual habits like you do? Do you want to see that small group member overcome habitual sin? And there's work you're going to have to do, but you, your effort isn't the power to affect the outcome. God alone produces growth. We must, if we want to see growth, we must, we must depend on him in prayer. Otherwise, the grass is going to be burnt and brown. Otherwise, the church or the marriage or the small group is going to flounder rather than flourish. Effective fellowship happens when we are diligently praying for growth. When we cooperate with God's power in prayer like Paul, we can participate in God's work like Philemon. See, Philemon is an example for us how we can actively contribute into the lives with others. Effective fellowship happens when we are actively contributing with faith and love. Are you doing that? When you interact with others in small group or help your spouse make changes in their lives or help your kids make better decisions, are you interacting with them with, a, with faith and with love? And so Philemon did look at verse 5. Paul said, Because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, I need to teach you a grammar and theology lesson here, and there's going to be two grammar and theology lessons today to be able to better grasp the meaning of what the author through the Holy Spirit is communicating to us. When I read verse 5 at first, part of it makes sense, part of it's confusing. 
Okay, love and faith toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Okay, love towards Jesus and for all the saints, that makes sense. I love Jesus, I love others. Faith towards the Lord Jesus makes sense. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Walk by faith, not by sight. Faith for all the saints? Am I supposed to put my faith in other Christians? Am I reading that right? There's something unique that we can't see in the word order in English that would have been very familiar to the word order of the original audience who read this when Paul wrote in his original language of Greek. In ancient languages like Greek, often they would use their word order to stack the words on top of each other to show that certain words match together with other words, kind of like a hamburger is stacked. Maybe you like double hamburgers. A good double hamburger is going to be bun, patty, patty, bun. Maybe you put other things in there, but really those are the things that hold it all together. And you know that the bun matches the bun, even though they're not touching. And the patties, obviously, they're together. That's kind of what Paul's doing with word over here. He's stacking the words to show that there's parallel on the outside and the inside. So I, I actually think that the New Living Translation tries to translate it in this way that matches the proper words together. The New Living Translation says, because I keep hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. Here's the point. The contribution that Paul gave thanks for that he heard about Philemon was giving was faith in Jesus that translated into love for other people. In Galatians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Your religious effort really doesn't matter. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What does count? Faith working through love. That's what counts in small groups. Faith in Christ that overflows into love for others. Are you contributing to others like that? What would it look like if we were investing into relationships with faith and love? Well, we would all be like guides going on a journey of a hike to a destination. And we'd be able to guide each other towards the destination of growth. Faith would be like the compass that is able to orient ourselves, even though we don't have a map around us, to know where we should go to get to the destination. What is faith? Faith is the capability to see the world the way that God sees it. Faith works when we hear God's word, when we trust that it's true, and when we do what it says. Love, on the other hand, if faith is like the compass that guides us, love, on the other hand, is like the gentle hand that won't let anyone fall behind and is willing to wait and be patient with those who are distracted with butterflies or squirrels or think that they know the right way. Faith is the conviction without compromise and assurance. I know the way that we're going and we can't go any other way, but without love, we're going to let other people fall behind and not care about them. And that's not helpful in fellowship. On the other hand, love without faith might be immensely self-giving and immensely servant-hearted, but love 
that offers a guiding hand without the compass of faith will only lead people through a, to get lost in a forest of good intentions without ever actually getting to the destination of growth. If we're gonna actually contribute to each other in relationships that matter, with your spouse, with your kids, in your small group, we need both faith and love. The conviction that God's way is true and we're following it. I, I'm, you might not like me because of it, but this is true. Love is the gentleness and kindness to patiently wait and not push, to patiently wait and not run ahead, to leave them on their own. Are you contributing like that? Maybe you're so truth-oriented that you leave people in the dust behind you. That's not gonna help others grow. That's not gonna make for effective fellowship. Maybe you're so love-oriented that you like, confrontation is uncomfortable and I'd rather not say the hard truth, but you're not gonna lead people to the destination. It's rocky on this trail and we need faith and love to be able to get us that way. Effective fellowship happens when we emphasize these three priorities to lead us towards the destination of growth. We need to diligently pray for growth. We need to be actively contributing with faith and love. And throughout this destination, this hike that we're going on towards growth, we do have a map that shows us the mile markers of whether we're getting there. And that's the gospel. The third priority that we need that makes for effective fellowship is graciously practicing gospel principles. If we're gonna participate in real fellowship that really makes a difference to help each other grow, we need to learn to graciously practice gospel principles. Let's look at the text again, verse six. The Apostle Paul says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brothers, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I said I'd give you two grammar and theology lessons today, right? Okay, here, here's the second one. First, before that, know that when Paul says the sharing of your faith, that's the word fellowship in the original language. If you care about it, the Greek word is koinonia, Fellowship is this is the spiritual relationships we share together. But Paul wanted these spiritual relationships to become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. So here's your grammar and theology lesson, the second one for the day. When I read this also, like verse five, I was kind of confused. Come effective for full knowledge. Okay, I get that. We want to grow in our knowledge. Of every good thing, okay, good things. I want to grow into the knowledge of good things. Good things that are in us for the sake of grace. Wait, that's kind of confusing to me. How are there good things in us? Wasn't Paul the guy who said in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who is good, no, not one? Wasn't Paul the same guy in Romans chapter 7 who said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh? What's Paul actually talking about here? The, the ESV translation is trying its best as it can, the people who translated the ESV from the original language, to keep to the literal 
Greek grammar as best as possible. The problem is sometimes if you try and translate grammar from one language to another language as literally as possible, it doesn't make sense in the new language. And as I studied the original language and the idea behind it, and then I read other commentators who are a lot smarter than me, I found that um, the NET translation, the NET translation, best captures what Paul is actually trying to say here. In the NET Bible, it's called NET Bible because it's only available online. The NET Bible says, I pray that the faith you share with us may deepen your understanding of every blessing that belongs to you in Christ. Do you see the difference in wording between ESV and the NET Bible? ESV says, every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. NET Bible says, every blessing that belongs to us in Christ. There are good things that we can experience in the Christian life, but the good things that we can practically experience aren't a result of the good that it's in us, but the blessing that we have because of the good that Christ has done for us. Paul prays that through their spiritual relationships together, they would come to a greater knowledge and a greater experience of all the blessings that are available to us because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we practice the principles of the gospel, the blessings of the gospel become beneficial to our spiritual well-being, right? And, and the, the blessing that comes to our spiritual well-being in this passage is a sense of refreshment to our soul. That's verse seven. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. But if we're gonna have this sense of refreshment, the gospel can't just be knowledge in our mind. It needs to be practiced in our lifestyle. The principles of the gospel need to become the practices of our life. If you just know it and don't do it, you won't be blessed by it. You might know that there's a benefit to having like good diet, right? There's a benefit to being active and exercising. There's a benefit to having predictable consistent sleeping patterns. When you have good diet, good exercise, good sleep, you have more energy. You have a better mood. But you're not going to enjoy those blessings unless you actually practice those principles. Similarly, there's refreshment for our soul that we can have together by helping each other come to a deeper knowledge of the gospel that translates into the practice of our life. And we get that when we help each other practice gospel principles. What's a gospel principle? Well, it's a reality of what Christ has done for us. What's a gospel practice? It's the implication for what that means for our lifestyle. For instance, here's a gospel principle. God loves you. And we know that Christ, God loves us because Christ Jesus gave up his life for us on the cross. That's a principle of the gospel. God loves you. So what's the practice of that principle? We should love God and we should love others. What's the benefit, the blessing that comes from practicing the principle that God loves us? When we love God and love others, we have a harmonious relationship with God and we have harmony and unity in our relationships with others. Here's another principle. God forgives. By faith in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven of your sin. 
So what's the practice of that principle? Was Jesus taught, as God has forgiven us, we need to forgive one another. And what's the blessing of practicing the principle? We have a unity and harmony in our relationships even when we hurt one another, even if we've hurt one another. Forgiveness maintains the unity and the harmony of love. This is the way that we grow in our walk with Christ. When the principles of the gospel are grasped deeper and then practiced in our lives, growth is stunted when our practice doesn't match the principle, when our behavior doesn't match our belief when you're living hypocritically. What way do you want to grow this year? Do you feel like your growth is stunted? Has your growth in peace of mind been stunted by worry and anxiety? Has your growth in purity been stunted by lust? Has your growth in work ethic been stunted by laziness? How can we bridge this gap between the principles in the gospel that we believe and the practice of the gospel that gives us blessing in the way that we live our life. Well, I wanna, I wanna teach you from my own experience and from my study of scripture what I found that bridges this gap. Three biblical virtues that we need to help each other learn so that we can practice the principles of the gospel. We need to help each other learn the virtues of the fear of God, assurance in the gospel, and godly wisdom. Let's take one of those principles that I already suggested as a case study. The principle of forgiveness. God forgives, we should forgive others. Right? But what if someone in your small group admits that they, they're holding on to unforgiveness. If someone in your small groups admits that they've been holding on to unforgiveness for years to their spouse or maybe the coworker, or maybe even they're upset with their kid, how can you help them grow? How can you help them forgive? How can you help them let go of bitterness? How can you help them bridge the gap between the principle and the practice so that they can grow? You need to teach them these three biblical virtues, the fear of God, assurance in the gospel, and godly wisdom. And to do that, I would ask them three questions. If someone admitted to me that they're struggling with unforgiveness, I would ask them three questions. First, a question to help them learn the fear of God. In love, I would ask a brother who confesses this to me, brother, how does God's word Assess the severity of that sin you just confessed. You might think there's a, you might think, whoa, whoa. Listen, people don't confess sin a lot, and this guy just did that. That's a win. Can't we like show him grace now and move on? I believe the reason that many of us are stunted in our growth is because we only see our sin on a human level, how it hurts my reputation how it hurts my relationship with you. And we do not see it on a spiritual level. The biggest concern isn't how you need to rebuild your reputation from your sin or how you need to rebuild a relationship from your sin. The biggest concern is how your sin dishonors a holy God. And unless 
you recognize that. Unless I recognize that, we will not grow. We'll only re-modify our behavior to, f- to fit what's most convenient for me on a human level. But that's not the concern. The concern is how this profanes the name and the holiness of God. Remember when King David slept with a guy's life, wife and then killed the guy? It was about nine months or more until he realized he was wrong. And then in Psalm 51, he wrote a confession about it. And when he wrote in his confession in Psalm 51, he said, against you and you alone have I sinned, O God, and done what is evil in your sight. Wait, you and you alone? David, you committed adultery. You had the husband killed. You sinned against two people right there. And you're the king. You sinned against the nation. How can you say it was against you, God alone? Because he recognized finally that this sin wasn't first about a human level, it was a spiritual level. How does God's word assess the severity of your sin? If you can't see the seriousness of your sin, I don't know how you're gonna receive the grace of God because we sin against God and we need his grace. We need to help each other learn the virtue of the fear of God, but then, then we can help them learn about the assurance of grace. If, if my brother who confessed unforgiveness to me got it and recognized his sin, I would then ask him this question. How does the gospel affirm your value in Christ even though you've sinned so severely? Yeah, we need the fear of God, we do. But then, then we need to remember our freedom in Christ. We need to remember the grace of God that covers our sin, the righteousness of Christ that, that covers us. We need to remember Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You're free. God doesn't look you with eyes of anger anymore. God looks at you with the same eyes of love that he looks at his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Perfect love casts out fear. Even though we've sinned, he loves us. And that love and that grace, the assurance of that love and that grace is humbling. And it's motivating. God, I'll do anything to show my love for you and obey you. I'll do, see, his kindness leads us towards repentance. We need to help each other learn the virtues of the fear of God. We need to help each other learn the virtue of assurance of grace in order to practice gospel principles. Here's the third virtue we need to learn. We need to learn godly wisdom. So I'd get practical and ask a third question like, brother, what are the circumstances like when you're most prone to fall into this sin? What are the circumstances most like when you're most prone to fall into sin? And you might feel like, whoa, he just confessed something and now you're gonna ask him to even confess more things? Most of us are tempted by the same sin at the same time, in the same place, with the same people. What if we had the discernment to recognize what to do before we got in the circumstances rather than after the circumstances came? What if we had the discernment 
to be able to avoid the circumstances completely if we can, or if we can't avoid the circumstances, to hide God's word in our heart so that when the temptation comes, I can immediately resist and fight back against the lies that temptation tells me that the sin is good, and I can fight back with the truth of God's word that says that it's evil and renounce it and run from it. So it's helpful. You might not be aware of the circumstances that most trip you up in a sin, but if you honestly evaluate it with others, they can help you see what you don't see so that you can avoid it or resist it. And even with all of these, I'm still gonna sin. You're still going to sin. But with the fear of God and assurance in the gospel, with godly wisdom and the supportive, caring environment of fellowship, we will see growth. You can see growth. And the bridge will be gapped so that what we believe will actually come into what we behave and the gospel that we know will become the gospel that we live. That's how growth happens. Growth happens when we diligently pray, when we actively contribute with faith and love, and when we graciously practice gospel principles, helping each other learn the fear of God, assurance of grace, and godly wisdom. So how is this gonna start in our church? Where does this need to start? It needs to start with those in spiritual leadership. It needs to start with me. It needs to start with ministry directors. It needs to start with our staff. It needs to start with our elders. It needs to start with any and any spiritual leadership, moms and dads, husbands and wives. It needed to start with Philemon. Because the person who delivered this letter to Philemon was the man who he needed to forgive, Onesimus. We learned this through our study in the book of Colossians. Onesimus was a slave who worked in Philemon's house. But sometime Onesimus decided, forget you, I'm gonna steal treasures from your house and leave. Under the government at the time, the punishment of that would have, could have been death. But then he got saved under Paul's preaching. And then he went back. Paul was praying for Philemon's church, that Philemon would have the leadership to be able to help others take gospel principles and make them gospel practices, but Philemon needed to do it first. He needed to know God is forgiving so I can forgive Onesimus. Leaders, it needs to start with you. Dads, it needs to start with you. How can you expect to see your kids grow in a love for Jesus if it's not starting with you? Small group leader, how can you expect to see others in your group confess their sin if you're not willing to confess your sin? You think, but, 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 but I'm a leader and they'll look at me differently. Uh, God looks at us all in the same way. We're all in need of his grace. If we are gonna pour out into others, we need to be first filled up ourselves and then we will abundantly overflow into others. That's what effective leadership looks like. And we all have a part to play in this. No tourists on this journey to growth, 
No spectators watching other people take, go to the destination. We're all pilgrims on the road of to sanctification. And we can all help each other. That's what makes for effective fellowship. Diligently praying for growth. Actively contributing with faith and love. And graciously practicing gospel principles. Doesn't matter how many people are doing it. But it matters if we're doing it well. This is effective fellowship. Will you participate in this way? Would you stand with me so we can pray together? Father, thank you that you have given us by your Holy Spirit gifts for the common good of the church. Thank you that the Spirit has entrusted me with gifts. Thank you that the Spirit has entrusted all of us who are in Christ Jesus with gifts, tools, so that we can contribute to other people growing in Jesus. And God, would we use our gifts? Would we be engaged in relationships, Lord? And as we're engaged in relationships, God, I care more about us doing it effectively than us just doing it. Forbid that we would just have another routine chore, like doing the dishes or like brushing our teeth. God, would you make the fellowship in our church effective so that we would come to a deeper understanding of the riches of the gospel and that we would help each other practice the blessings that come from it. Would we be people who diligently pray, Lord God, because we can't do it alone and you're the only one who produces change and we would do it with faith and love, following your word and leading others with compassion and kindness. God, would this year prove to be a high mark, a, the next level in our growth that we haven't seen before, that we never thought we could reach, that we didn't know was attainable. Would you make this year a year of growth in our church and in our small groups? In Jesus' name, Lord, help us. Amen.